Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. Eurowatch. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is drive time. Elliot Dank and Timothy Go with you. It's time now for Eurowatch, uh, where the U.S. has told that Russia is considering returning to talks on the Black Sea grain deal that had allowed the safe Black Sea export of Ukraine grain. Mm-hmm. So that's what we are focusing on on Eurowatch today. There's a lot of movement and developments happening in that part of the world. Russia is also saying that the Kremlin has restarted its position on that grain deal, as you were mentioning. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there was also that drone strike Ah. uh, 48 hours ago, maybe even more than that, uh, in Moscow. So we'll find out what's happening. Dr. Samir Puri, who is visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London. He's also the author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. On the line with us, Dr. Samir, good afternoon. How have you been? Well, happy to be back in Singapore after a month and a half in Europe. I'm very well. (laughs) Uh, And welcome back to the uh, weather in Singapore as well. Good luck with the humidity. Let's talk a little bit about the Black Sea grain deal talks. Apparently, Russia is ready to go back to the table. What are we expecting now after that initial exit from Russia? So I think one thing that people sometimes don't notice about the grain deal is Russia is actually asking for its own fertilizers and other products to be exported as part of this deal and to have access to world markets. What can we expect? We can expect to see the Russians haggling over this whilst at the same time launching missile attacks against Ukraine's port facilities, such as those in Odessa that we've been seeing hit in the last few days. Whether this goes anywhere is it, it remains to be seen, but the Russians are desperate to be involved in some kind of negotiation over Ukraine. But Ukraine, of course, doesn't want to negotiate over the war and ending the war. So this is the next best thing the Russians have is to haggle over this grain deal and express their discontent over basically being ignored by most of the world over their demands in this war. All right, doctor. So what do you think will be the pull factor for Russia to to, to renew the deal if they want to, though? Some of this comes down to how clever Turkey can be in, in inserting itself in this middle position it has. So Putin had a phone call with Erdogan of Turkey, mm-hmm. who, of course, we know will be in, in Turkey's top spot for the next five years. So expect him to go nowhere. And Turkey played a mediating role just over a year ago in, first of all, getting this grain deal together, Turkey and the UN. And I, I think it might be down to Turkey to see whether there's, there's a middleman between the West, because it's also in NATO, of course, and Russia, who it's still on speaking terms with, if there's any kind of overlap that can be found. But I'll be honest with you, it doesn't look good, because for as long as Russia keeps bombing those Ukrainian ports, you can just turn around to Russia and say, well, what's the point if you re-sign this grain deal? Mm. You're also using violent force and destroying these grain supplies. So how can we trust you? How can we believe you, especially since you've gone back on this after one year? Well, Doctor, since you say it doesn't look good, then what can we expect in terms of uh, aftermath of deal cancellation? Fighting intensify, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, the fighting is, at the moment, as I think most of us know from just our headlines, it's the Ukrainians trying to recapture territory. Yeah. The Russians probably, obviously, they're, defense, they're in the defensive position. They're probably also, the Russians, not suffering as many casualties as they were maybe four or five months ago. So I think the Russians will want to just dig in, mm. lob these missiles long range, absorb Ukraine's counteroffensive, try to show to Ukraine and the world that Ukraine's counteroffensive isn't going anywhere. And that's really the biggest uncertainty, isn't it? Whether the Ukrainians get this breakthrough 
in the south of, uh, of the big front line, the thousand kilometer front line, or whether they're, they're stuck in these minefields and, and, and held back by the Russians. That is honestly, when we're thinking about things like global energy and food prices, so much of that is going to be determined ultimately by what's happening on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And that really is, is where we're at until that Ukrainian winter kicks in a bit later in the year and these, these military operations become a bit less feasible than they are right now in the summer. Doctor, let me get your thoughts on this since you're talking about the battlefield. The Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky uh, mentioned over the weekend that the war, in his words, is gradually coming back to Russian territory. And then, of course, we saw two days of drone attacks in Russia's business district. What do you make of all of this? I mean, it's pretty dramatic, isn't it? It's, it the Russians, I think, went overboard. And one Russian official, I think, said this is Russia's 9-11, <laughs> which is clearly ridiculous, since I think the damage caused is probably more symbolic, symbolic. than it is de- decisive, much like if you remember that dramatic drone attack over the Kremlin mm-hmm. many months ago. These sorts of things are so important for Ukraine's morale, there are a great demonstration of Ukraine's long-range drone program, which it's, it's been very successful with, clearly. And I suppose it just means that Zelensky and his colleagues in the Ukrainian leadership have got that ammun- verbal ammunition to throw at the Russians. And of course, Ukraine's people are under a much more serious aerial assault from missiles and drones. So, you know, one cannot blame the Ukrainian military for wanting to be able to do something in retaliation to try and give Russia a taste of its own medicine here. At the same time, we've got Saudi Arabia, who seems to be quite keen on hosting some kind of a peace summit. Mm. Where is this coming from? Now, isn't this an interesting sign of the way the world is (laughs) turning? You've got countries like, obviously, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, even China, Indonesia, you remember, Joko Widodo, who went over to Russia and Ukraine, all these third-party countries. But I mention all of these countries because... I think if this ever goes ahead, and remember, the key is Russia is not invited to this okay. summit. It, uh, this idea of a summit, putative summit, would be to show global solidarity without Russia present. Okay. Whether it goes ahead, we have to wait and see, because Zelensky has a 10-point peace plan, which basically the most important point is Russia has to leave our territory, but Russia doesn't want to leave. So mm. you can have a peace mm. summit and you still have that disagreement. The question, too, is, Doctor, why is Saudi Arabia so keen on hosting this peace summit? So you'll notice when I was sort of talking about Turkey playing both sides, Saudi Arabia, this is the way of the world in 2020. I think these independently wealthy or powerful countries are able to play the West and Russia and China in its, in its own way. Yeah. And to sit between all of them, taking all of the business, all the, all the benefits. Saudi Arabia, you know, we all know they buy a lot of American military equipment. They sell the Americans the oil. But the Saudis, you know, they're very happy talking to, to Russia. Mohammed bin Salman, the MBS, the leader of Saudi Arabia, famously gave a high five, I think it was, to mm. Vladimir Putin a couple of years ago. In a, in a press moment when they met. So I think Saudi Arabia, again, wants to maximize all of its benefits from being in this middle ground position of friends with, any, with everybody to some extent. Doctor, let's talk a little bit about the, the Niger coup and why this is getting France uh, so worried. Quite a few nations have condemned this attempted coup, which began, I believe, uh, just yesterday. Why is uh, Niger so important to the West? Well, I mean, arguably, is it that important to the West? Because, you know, when, when things happen in, in somewhere like Niger, you see a fraction of the responses to what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, I know they're not equivalent circumstances, mm-hmm. but, you know, there are degrees of importance. And I think you did mention France. 
which is is really, really important party here because ultimately the French have got these post-colonial connections to different parts of Africa. And, you know, when the French, it was, it was a French colony until 1960. So everyone in Singapore will know exactly what that means generationally in terms of the number of generations that go by between independence. But, you know, the French, they kept a lot of influence in these parts of Africa through their currency, through their defence and diplomacy links. And actually, as we've also seen in Mali, separately to this, not, not to do with this coup, mm -hmm. there's a generational change in some of these African countries where I think French influence is not as welcome as it was business interests, military, you know, assistance, all these other things. And there's a Russia connection, of course, because Russia... And this Wagner group does good business in some mm. African countries, uh, providing sort of non-judgmental security support as well. So that, I think, is why it, takes, it gets a lot of European and global interest. And, of course, there is the impact on uranium as well, right? Yes, and that's the other thing. And that's the other reason, of course, France and, and other European countries are very keen to keep their influence, as was Russia, mm -hmm. is that these are very uh, mineral-rich countries. But, you know, it's, Niger, as well as... So many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, it's resource-rich, but it's, it's levels of, of economic development and, and sort of living standards are very variable. And the proneness of these countries, to some of these countries, to military coups is, is a problem, I think, that's impossible to unscramble due to the fragility of democracy uh, in these places. Like uh, President uh, Macron doesn't have enough to deal with, uh, I suppose we can expect sanctions uh, to come. Would this, I mean, sanctions against Russia already exist. Yeah. How could this develop or evolve, if I'm using the right words here? Yeah, you're right about Macron. He has a, almost an insurgency of, <laughs> of, of protests of people throwing bottles and, you know, and angry in France over all sorts of domestic policies. Yeah, but in yeah. terms of... Uh, uh, sanctions to with Niger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting again that theme of the world being a changed place today. So let's say the EU and the USA and some other mass, the G7, you know, they all sanction Niger. Niger may, its military leadership may still find trading partners in Russia, maybe it'll find them in China, maybe it'll find them elsewhere. Right. And, and that, even closer to where we're sitting now in Myanmar, different subject, these Western G7-led sanctions are only a partial punishment because you can go shopping in the global marketplace for, okay. for alternative deals. Mm. We've been speaking with Dr. Samia Puri, who is visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London, as well as author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Dr. Samia, I appreciate your time today. Take care and have a great evening. Thanks very much. Good to speak to you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.